Hi, you're listening to Science Soapbox, a podcast at the intersection of science, policy, and advocacy. I'm Devin, here with Miriam. Hey. And Avital. Hey, everybody. Stepping onto today's soapbox is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She is a professor of political science and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. And she is also uh, the founder and CEO of Atmos Research. And we're really excited to talk to Dr. Hayhoe. She was actually one of the first guests that we had been trying to get for multiple years. And this is kind of a dream come true for the, for the cast. Yeah. Avital and I were at the AAAS annual meeting and got to see her work her magic in person, talking about the intersection of climate, climate action, environmental justice, and faith. And she's been like a science communication inspiration for me as I've thought through like effective ways to engage with people. And so it was just like a real joy and privilege and honor to get to chat with her. Yeah. And her main mode of uh, communication or public communication is through Twitter nowadays, which is a case for some phenomenal examples for short form science communication. Really a joy to follow. Yeah. And then also going and engaging with communities one-on-one, which has been a really successful strategy and way of connecting with people and, and talking about the realities of climate change and why we should act. Yeah. And something that was really interesting for all of us, and I think especially for me, and you'll, you'll see more why when you're listening to the episode, is that Dr. Hejo is not only a very outspoken climate scientist, um, she also identifies very publicly as a Christian. And just something that we have not really discussed on, on the cast before. So it was really cool to talk to somebody who has these two identities that seemingly, for a lot of people, I think are, are very much a conflict, but she has, she's a really great example of how and why they're not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a really great lesson for people who like care about communication and public perception of scientists to know that we don't have to silo the different parts of our identities that when we bring them all together that makes it that makes us that much more powerful as scientists and communicators of science. And she's someone who has shown that extremely well and effectively. Right. So let's not wait any longer. Let's just get right into the episode. Enjoy. All right. Well, thank you so much for squeezing us into your super busy schedule. We've been wanting to chat with you uh, since we started the show up. So since time is of the essence and since you are a seasoned science communication pro, we have a challenge for you. Okay. Could you tell us what you do and why in a sentence or two? I study what climate change means to us in the places where we live. So often we think that climate change only matters to future generations or to people or animals like the polar bear who lives far away. But the reality is we care about a changing climate because it affects us, our families, our communities, and our lives. Challenge succeeded. <laughs> Success. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. So you're also someone who identifies publicly and loudly as both a scientist and a Christian, which isn't really something that we see much of in the science space. And you've really been able to use that to your advantage as both a scientist and an advocate. And so we're wondering, was that a conscious decision that you made or was that something that you realized was an asset later on in your career? 
it was absolutely a conscious decision that I made when I started to recognize through engaging with people outside of the ivory tower that people were using a lot of what I would see as religiously sounding objections to climate change. You know, it can't be happening because God's in control or, you know, there will always be seasons or the world's going to end anyways, as well as, of course, the standard science sounding objections like it's just a natural cycle and wouldn't warmer weather be better anyways. When I recognized that people were actually seeing their faith as a barrier to acknowledging what is happening to our planet, that's when I realized that I had to be prepared to share with them not just all the data and facts that we collect as scientists, but to share with them my reasons for caring, which actually have everything to do with being a Christian and feeling that we have responsibility over this planet and that we are to care for others who are less fortunate than us. I'm not going to lie, it was scary because as scientists, that's not what we're taught to do. We're taught to be very, you know, the brain in the jar, very rational, very fact-based, only the facts, only the data. But when we're trying to engage with people on an issue that matters, it isn't enough to engage our heads. We have to engage our hearts too. And for many people, um, about 85% of people in the U.S. and around the world, a lot of what is in our hearts, a lot of our values, a lot of what's important to us comes from our faith. Yeah, we were just talking before this call that there's there's sort of this tendency in science to silo the different parts of your identity instead of bringing our full selves to bear in the work that we do. But I think that your effectiveness in this climate communication space really feels like proof in the pudding um, that bringing all of your identities can have a really, really big impact when you're dealing with uh, or when you're talking to communities that might be a little bit skeptical of, of science for a whole host of different mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah, One of my favorite quotes is from Jane Goodall, who I've loved since I was a little girl watching her movies, but it was only a few years ago after a long career, decades in science, that she said, it's only when our clever brain and our human heart work together that we can achieve our full potential. I feel like that is what we are all starting to learn when it comes to science, because as you just said, we are often taught and trained to to silo ourselves very carefully. I see that changing already in our community today. I see people recognizing the importance of engaging on issues that affect people, um, issues that affect our health, um, issues that affect the well-being of this incredible planet that we live on. We're starting to recognize that we need to bring all of us, all of who we are, to this discussion in order to, as Jane says, reach our full potential. Yeah, that, that's actually a really great lead into the next question that we had for you, which is, I really love that you pointed out that it was such a conscious decision on your part to to sort of marry together your faith and and your and your uh, perspective as a scientist. And I I was particularly excited to talk to you because I don't identify as a Christian any longer. But when I was a child and growing up, I was like deeply involved in the church and in, in evangelical Christianity. And and one of the things that I had to do kind of coming up was was really reconcile my life as someone who grew up Christian and my interest in science. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things that I've really been interested in, I guess, sort of lifelong, but also especially now, is how that upbringing has informed my interest in science communication in particular, especially talking about things that are kind of hard to talk to with certain, talk about with certain audiences. And so... Mm -hmm. 
the, I guess the, so the question I have for you is, uh, you, you've labeled yourself as a climate change evangelist. And that to me seems well, like... Well, actually, actually, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> you have asked. been labeled as such. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. I, I actually don't think it's appropriate because an evangelist, as you know, it means to spread good news. Right, yeah. I feel like I'm the opposite. I feel much more like a Jeremiah <laughs> or a Cassandra telling people the terrible things that will happen if they don't change their ways. <laughs> So maybe, so maybe my question was a little improper. Uh, maybe it's more like, well, how do you think then that uh, maybe the more uh, evangelizing approach approaches that you would you would find, and you know, the edicts that are contained within Christianity, how how can those uh, inform how we talk about those potentially controversial topics and in, in public? Hmm. Well, that is a great question, and there's a very interesting book called How Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, written by a guy called George Marshall. And doing the research for his book, which is a fantastic summary of all the social science on understanding how people think about climate change. So I highly recommend the book. But what was so curious to me was in doing his research, he um, he is not a Christian as far as I know himself, but he traveled around to a lot of different churches and looked at how they communicated. And what he advocates for in his book is communication more along the line of what we use in faith-based communities, which um, relates to how we see ourselves. And what George says, and I'm I'm starting to kind of come around to his perspective, what George argues is that the reason why many climate solutions have not caught is because they don't make us feel like a better version of who we already are. They don't reinforce who we are, and they don't actually enhance or add to our, our identity and who we want to be. They make us feel like we're leading a a lesser life rather than right. a greater life. And that's something that we definitely hear a lot about, not in scientific circles, but in more faith-based circles. Um, but I also wanted to comment on the earlier part of what you said, because I, I grew up um, not in the U.S. Uh, I grew up in Canada, and until I had moved to the U.S., I had actually never met anyone who thought the world was 6,000 years old. I, <laughs> I knew there were people, <laughs> because oh. my dad is a science teacher, so you talk about it sometimes. But it's a unique feature of American Christianity that there are all of these extra rules and beliefs built up around the basic content of the Bible to the point where now several people, including um, a leading Christian author, Philip Yancey, who I just heard speak to a group of scientists who are Christians last summer. So Philip Yancey and others are now arguing that this absolute insistence on a very rigid rejection of a lot of what science is saying, not just about origins, but also about climate change and other issues, it is actually driving young people away from the church in droves because they're being presented with a false choice between either accepting not, you know, just what the Bible says, but all this construct that's been built around it in American Christianity, including thou shalt always vote Republicans, thou shalt always say the earth is 6,000 years old, thou shalt reject science because it's a liberal artifact, yeah. you know, <laughs> that that's on the statement of faith. And so people are being presented with this absolutely false choice, whereas the reality is, if, if you're a person, if somebody is a person who believes that God created the universe, then how could studying God's creation in any way be opposed to that belief. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And, and I really love that you, you point that out because that's, again, that's like a very personal thing that I've, you know, as I was coming up, like was really struggling with. And I, I thought like, well, if I believe this about this, you know, the scientific study of the world, does that make me a bad person? Does that, does that... Mm-hmm. 
is that necessarily in conflict with, you know, with the Christian faith? And I, I guess I came out on the other side okay, but it, it took a lot of soul searching yes. and really thinking about about that. And I, I kind of landed in the same place. Like if if God created the universe in this way, then isn't it a form of worship to study what God has made and try to, you know, figure out what those mysteries are? Yeah, exactly. I think there there are I personally know of hundreds of scientists who would agree with that statement. And like I said, outside the US, um, many, many more people would too. It's just that we've we have this bizarre situation where this almost um, political ideology has been built up right. um, ar- ar- around our faith. And it's gotten to the point where, for some people, actually, especially when it comes to issues like climate change and, and pollution and other environmental issues, too, it's gotten to the point where our statement of faith or belief is somehow being written first by our politics, right. which yeah. is just completely upside down and messed up. Yeah, I'd never even considered that that was something that was unique to faith in America until I really started following you. And I was and I remember talking to my dad and I was like, there's this woman on Twitter who says that Canadian Christians are different than the ones here. And uh, and he just kind of laughed. at me. Oh, no, it, it's true. I mean, so so I got to go to the, the Paris climate meetings back over two years ago now. And while I was there, I met with other, not just Christians, but even evangelicals from around the world. And the head of the World Evangelical Alliance was there as an official delegate for his country, the Philippines. So the head of 600 million evangelicals in the entire world takes climate change so seriously that he's an official delegate to the Paris Agreement. I mean, that is just, you know, 180 degrees from what we see here in the U.S., isn't it? Yeah. Wow. So I guess that kind of can lead us into the next question. <laughs> um, yeah, this might have gone in a very different direction. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. It's um, we. That's how we like it. We find that always our best conversations are the are the ones that form organically. But so you're you're someone who spends a lot of time talking to different communities that scientists typically don't engage much with. And we're wondering what, who or what group is the most unexpected ally that you found or made as you've been engaging in this work that we might be surprised about? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I would say, first of all, the toughest audience is not who you might think. I mean, people often expect that if I'm speaking to a Baptist college, for example, if I'm speaking to some conservative religious group, that that might be the, the toughest. It isn't. When when they invite me in, it's usually because at least a few people, if not many, are already either curious or wanting more information. I would say the toughest nuts to crack are, not literally, um, are, are farmers and producers and water managers who they live with the temperature and the precipitation and natural cycles, but they live year to year. They don't live decade to decade. So they have a profound understanding of weather, but often they severely lack a long-term understanding of climate. And so getting oh, getting past the paradigm of it's just a natural cycle. This is the way it's always been. My grandpa, my great-grandpa, my great-great-great-granddaddy, they all saw the same thing. Getting past that paradigm is actually often harder because they are such experts in weather and just Justifiably so. So, so if that's the hardest group, what's what are some of the unexpected allies? Well, I have had some fascinating conversations with um, the executives of oil and gas companies who who see the writing on the wall and say, "What is the future?" 
for our industry. We want to know. Let's talk about it. I don't go places where I'm not invited. I don't elbow my way into, you know, into meeting rooms or boardrooms. I only go where people ask me to. Um, And so I would say some of the most surprising conversations I've had are with some of the people he would expect to have the least productive conversations with. Yeah, that's really amazing because I I would have, if asked to speak off the cuff about the receptivity of those two groups, I would have reversed them. Yeah, me too. So it's just very interesting. Um, I have had fantastic conversations with members of the military. One of the stories that stuck in my head was a brigadier general who was in charge of the supply lines in Afghanistan. And he had become an ardent advocate for renewable energy because he saw the incredible toll, not just in terms of dollars, but lives, that depending on fossil fuels was having on U.S. troops in Afghanistan because they would fight all year to defend a certain point and then they'd run out of oil so they'd have to pack everybody up and travel two days down this narrow dirt road with all the protection that they could to go get their supplies for the next year and then they're coming back up with these you know enormous trucks loaded full of oil which are just bombs on wheels essentially so they have to have as much protection as they can well while they've been gone the Taliban went and took over the position they've been fighting for for a year. And so they have to start over again. And so he had such vivid reasons why this is costing us today that have nothing to do with long-term climate change and everything to do with dollars and human lives. But these stories are just so unexpected. Another really cool story is a graduate from our university, Texas Tech, and we live in the second most conservative city in the U.S. after Provo, Utah. So he graduated from Texas Tech. He went to seminary. He did a degree in ethics and missions, and he decided that what he wanted to do was to start an energy auditing company to help churches and seminaries and Christian colleges measure their energy costs, reduce their carbon footprint, and save money that they could then invest in whatever their real priorities were. I, you know, just just the fact that you wouldn't expect that to come out of, you know, you wouldn't expect that to come out of West Texas and seminary. You wouldn't expect, you know, ardent advocates for clean energy to come out of Afghanistan, the military. It, seeing these voices raised from all aspects of society is really what gives me hope because this is a people issue and this is about working together for a better, better world. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm wondering, like, as you go into because you talk to such a diverse range of audiences. So if we were, you know, you're getting ready to go and talk to a certain community. And how do you how do you like brainstorm or prepare in advance for how you're going to frame the issue of climate? And what are sort of for, for those of us who are interested in connecting with different audiences? What are some considerations that go through your head as you're prepping yourself to talk to different people? Well, you, you've asked the exact right question because that is exactly what I do. I don't have a canned presentation that I just give to every audience. I certainly have, you know, a number of templates that I can start from. But when I'm invited to speak somewhere, I want to have a conversation. I want to know why did they invite me? What type of people are they? What are their concerns? What are their questions? I need to get to know them and have that conversation in order to understand where we can start Because the most effective place to start is not with what divides us, not with what we disagree on, but rather with what we absolutely do agree on. And then based on that shared agreement, 
then connect the dots between why we would care about a change in climate um, because of this value or concern that we already share. So because of that, um, when I'm invited to speak to some groups where I honestly feel like I know other people who are better able to connect on their core values, I do not hesitate to recommend someone else. So it's really important to start with those shared values. And if, if I don't know what they are, and this applies to individual conversations as well as presentations, right? If we don't know what they are, if we're talking to somebody and we don't really know where they're coming from or what's important to them, well, ask questions, listen to them, mm-hmm. encourage them to share. And then when you find something that you agree with them on, then you can start to connect. So for example, there was somebody who I had run into who had attended a talk I'd given and who had objected strongly to the contents of my talk and said that there was no way we could know climate was changing and humans are responsible. The uncertainty is just too large. I ran into this person completely accidentally a year later on the other side of the world. And we got stuck together where we both walked out a door one after another and the door locked behind us and we couldn't get back. So we were (laughs) So I looked at him, he looked at me, we both kind of, you know, we were, you could see we're both deciding, all right, we're just going to be polite. And we started walking along to where we had to go and, you know, obviously searching for some conversation to have. And he happened to look down at my bag and he saw I had knitting needles there. He said, oh, do you knit? I said, yes. In fact, I'm knitting a present for my mom for her birthday. It's her birthday this week. He said, oh, I knit too. I knit my family presents for Christmas last year. I said, really? And he says, yes, because I don't think we should be going and buying more stuff. I think it's better to make presents for the people that we love. It's more meaningful. And we're also not just increasing consumerism. So I said, well, I couldn't agree more. I think that's fantastic. And then when he saw I reacted so positively, then he started to tell me about how he didn't just recycle, he upcycled. He made his family's furniture out of pallets. And they live close to a city center. They don't own a car. He only makes one international trip a year. They walk everywhere. I mean, by the time he he finished telling me about his life, I turned to him and I said, you know, I wish everybody thought the same way you do about climate change if everybody would just live the way that you do. So we were able to find an incredible point of connection, even though he still didn't agree with me on the science. Yeah, that's amazing how he's living so green yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he was doing it for other reasons. And that's why I think it's so important to talk about why solutions are good for the economy, for local jobs, for clean air, for um, the health of our families and our communities. We need to talk about the co-benefits. We don't just need to say, oh, well, it's good for people who live in a South Sea island or it's good for future generations. We do want to talk about why it's good for us, too. And that, again, is not something that we as scientists are really educated in. And so it's been a very steep learning curve for me to learn more about solutions. Yeah, because we're we're dealing in the space of problems <laughs> and, and, and identifying yeah. the right problems to pursue. And I know for me, I decided to leave academia because I found that the closer I got to an answer, the less interested I became. <laughs> I mean, the, the image I have of us as climate scientists, for example, it's as if you, you have this fever that goes up and down from day to day, but from year to year, it gets hotter and hotter. It keeps rising and rising. So you finally go to the doctor. The doctor runs all the scans. And then the doctor says, well, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty sure, you know, between 97 and 99% sure I consulted 100 doctors. We're pretty sure that, that you have this previously unknown disease. And then you say to the doctor, okay, well, what should I do? And the doctor just sits back and folds their hands and says, oh, well, that's not up to me. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I can't really tell you anything about that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) 
So shifting gears a little, we, as I mentioned before, I follow you on Twitter uh, and follow a number of climate scientists and climate advocates on Twitter. And uh, it's hard to not notice the extent of harassment that you and your colleagues get. And yet you still seem to keep a balance on your feed of being optimistic and positive and solutions oriented while still addressing that this that this kind of harassment is a problem. And so how do you find that balance, especially for for as scientists are starting to become more vocal about solutions and and our politics and our stance on different things? How do you strike that balance? Mm -hmm. That is a really tough question. It's one that I think about a lot because we don't have a lot of models to, to follow. So one thing that really helps me is the six Americas of global warming. It is put out by the Yale Climate Communication Program, and it's a fantastic way to visualize people. Too often we we picture people as either yes or no on on an issue like climate change or something else. Um, But the reality is is that we we can divide people out into six different groups. You have people who are alarmed and then people who are concerned, and that's actually a very big group. Then you have people who are cautious, and that's a big group too. And then you have people who are doubtful and disengaged and then dismissive. So the dismissive people only make up 10% of the population. But on Twitter and on social media and in the comment sections of online articles, dismissive people make up probably 90% of the comments and about 99% of the attacks. Yeah, yeah, just a rough estimate. So too often we can confuse the loudest voices with the most people with the greatest numbers of people. And so the Six Americas helped me see that even though dismissives are very loud, they're actually an extremely small segment of the population, number one. And number two, they're called dismissive. I think that's a great name rather than denier. They're called dismissive because they will dismiss everything. They will dismiss 10,000 scientific studies, the opinions of thousands of scientists. I mean, the way I think of it is they would dismiss an angel from God with new tablets of stone saying global warming is real and put high letters of flame. <laughs> so if they would dismiss that, then who am I to think that I'm going to change their mind? I don't think I am. So, so that helps me because when I'm confronted with the dismissive, as I am seriously almost every day on social media, um, what I do is I re- if, unless they're very offensive the first time, which about half of them are, um, if they're just only moderately offensive, I usually respond at least once. And I'm not responding, though, for them because I do not have any hope that I'll change their mind. I'm responding for other people who will see that yeah. to know that we do have answers. But, but then the second question, too, is, well, how much do you talk about this? Originally, when, when, I mean, when I started to get this stuff, I didn't really talk about it at all. Um, part of that was because I didn't, I didn't want to be perceived as whining about this. I mean, obviously, I made a choice to be in the public sphere and being attacked as part of what comes with the territory. Also, you know, I didn't want to, I, I felt like, well, you know, maybe I'm being too bold, the, the terrible imposter syndrome. Maybe I said something that provoked them. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm partly to blame. And, well, you know, of course, of course, no, I don't, I don't think we are anymore. But I didn't really talk about it. But then I started to think, you know what? Evil flourishes in darkness. By not making other people aware of the true evil that is out there, and I don't think that's too strong a word when you consider that the future of civilization is at stake and we're talking about, you know, millions, tens of millions, even potentially hundreds of millions of lives. Mm. Um, it, it flourishes in darkness. And so by no means do I share or make a point of most of the hate I get. I would say I probably share about maybe 1% 
um, of what I get. And I worry that maybe that's too much, that maybe I am, you know, people do think that I'm doing this to be a victim and I'm not. I'm just, I just think it's important to be aware that there's a battle. There is a fight. It is real. There is an enemy. We didn't pick it, but if they come against us as scientists, we are going to stand and we are not alone. We're in this together. And I think that's important for other scientists to see that we are in this together. We are standing for the truth. And when people come against us, um, we don't have to feel alone or afraid. We're part of an enormous team that stretches around the entire world. So that, that's actually a really great lead in to our, our wrap up question. And again, we just like really want to thank you for, for sharing your time with us. But, and for um, uplifting us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> look for hopeful stories to share though because hope is what will keep us going long term fear and despair and panic are good for knee-jerk reactions but we'll burn out on those we need something to keep us going and so hope is an active emotion we have to go out looking for it we the news media just bombards us with negativity all the time about how terrible this is and how horrible that is. And could you believe this person did that or said that or what happened over here? We have to go looking for that hope. And so that's why I really try to make a point um, on Facebook and on Twitter of trying to share these hopeful stories of what people are doing to help work together to make our world a better place. Yeah, so that was that was exactly our... <laughs> Our wrap-up question, which is what anchors you or helps you uh, from embracing the sort of doomy, gloomy picture that comes with, you know, climate apocalypse. And (laughs) I think... Uh, Yes, well... As you know, I mean, it's not science. When we look at the science of what has happened to our planet, it seems like every new study shows that something is changing faster or to a greater extent than we thought or there's new impacts that we didn't fully recognize before. I'm a lead author on the U.S. National Climate Assessment, and my favorite chapter that I helped write was also the most depressing chapter. It was the last one, chapter 15, and people can find this report online at science2017.globalchange.gov. Chapter 15 talks about the potential for surprise in the climate system. What are the things that we know that we don't know? And what might some of the things be that we don't even know yet that we don't know? It's fascinating. It's challenging. It's complex. It it appeals to why we became scientists in the first place. But it is scary. So, So, no, I do not find hope when I look at what's happening to our world. But where I do find hope is when I look at what people are doing. Whether it's something small, like driving behind another car that's a plug-in and saying, hey, somebody else has one here in Lubbock, Texas. I'm not the only one. <laughs> or what, yeah, or um, when it's looking at Citizens Climate Lobby, who has a truly bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in Congress with half Democrat and half Republican members talking about climate solutions. Or when you hear about all the amazing technology that's going on with pay-as-you-go solar in sub-Saharan Africa, where people don't even have any form of electricity, or the fact that Morocco has the biggest solar power plant in the world, or the fact that the biggest military base in the U.S., Fort Hood, which of course is in Texas, um, went with wind and solar energy last year to save over $150 million because it was cheaper than natural gas. Mm. I mean, these are the stories that actually make us feel like, yes, the world is changing. The boulder is already starting to roll downhill. We just need more hands. Great. I think that's That's a perfect place to leave off. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for being a constant source of inspiration online. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic talking with you guys, too. 
That's our show, folks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Science Soapbox. For more episodes at the intersection of science policy and advocacy, you can check us out on the web at sciencesoapbox.org or follow us on Twitter at science underscore soapbox. You can also subscribe to our episodes on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, leave us a review so that more folks can discover our podcast. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Outreach Lab, where we record our intros and outros, and to Visager, who made the music that you are now listening to. Until next time, I'm Miriam signing off for Devin and Avital.